This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. All right, welcome to Transparency, everyone. We are uh, joined today uh, by uh, Frederick Riberson. I believe, is that how you pronounce your last name? My apologies if I've butchered that. No, that's right. Absolutely. <laughs> okay. okay. Um, uh, I, I've encountered your YouTube channel and uh, just sort of started uh, binging it because it's just a fountain of wealth on, like a, a wealth of information on um, kind of uh, narcissist tactics and very practical, not advice. You, you're careful to, to, to mention it's not advice, but it's very um, just really, really valuable insights on interacting with narcissists, how to protect yourself, um, and how to kind of counter uh, a lot of those rhetorical tactics. Um, and when I was watching it, I couldn't help but apply it to more large-scale um, kind of group tactics, less so than interpersonal, more like how this is applied in like social justice world, things like that. Um, and uh, anyway, so I really appreciate you having you on and kind of you're going to you're going to kind of explain to us how how like individuals can can kind of interrupt this when it's on a, on a large. Um, yes, I'm having a hard time phrasing that, but, but on a social, <laughs> on a mass social level. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for being here. And I'll hand it over to you to introduce yourself. Yeah, well, thank you for having me. Uh, and indeed, it's it's interesting to see that individuals can have certain patterns, but I also believe that groups have some kind of subconscious psyche, as do nations. And when we're aware of it, we see to what extent the same patterns repeat themselves. Uh, I think it can be quite insightful to to learn what to identify. So whenever we see it, we understand when we're being manipulated or when something strange or toxic is happening, regardless of the intention. Um, so my my background actually is in political science. I studied that and realized afterwards just how much of what I studied was helpful and how much of it was actually one-sided, oversimplistic, was framed in a way that would lead to a conclusion that would make me see the world in a certain way. And it basically took a while of comparing what I what I'd been taught to think with reality for me to just start thinking, you know, wait, this doesn't add up. Like I'm expecting to see certain things. I'm not seeing the things. So the two possibilities, one is that I'm hallucinating. Another one is that there's a problem with reality. Or the last one is that what I'm taught to expect just isn't accurate. And as I believe that, we don't really argue with reality. We just see if a, if a model is accurate, like if a map is accurate, I should be able to walk around San Francisco and not get lost. But if a map of San Francisco shows me the Eiffel Tower and I'm not seeing it, maybe it's a map of Paris. So I need to be very careful with which map I'm using and, and making sure that I'm taking the feedback from reality back into my model. Um, and then well, as, as through life, I encountered quite a few, unfortunately, quite a few toxic people, narcissists, and I started seeing the patterns that they had in their behavior. And at one point, I wanted to warn someone who was in a relationship with a con man. And I knew that if I just said, this person is a con man, this person is a, a pathological liar, I knew she'd never listen to me. And she also had been told that I would dislike him and I was being dishonest. So instead, I decided to write an article to simply highlight toxic behaviors I saw, toxic patterns I saw in him. Then I started thinking, I see these in him, but in other people I've met, in people I've dated, in some of the teachers I had. And so 
my main conclusion is if something is toxic, I don't care who's doing it or why they're doing it, it is toxic. So when we understand the toxic behaviors, we see most of us are sometimes a bit toxic, and that's normal because we're human. Some people are constantly a bit toxic, and those people are, are terrible to be around. Some people are seldom extremely toxic, and they're awful, also awful to be around. But some people are constantly extremely toxic, and those ones we just run away from because life around them is a nightmare. And uh, yeah, I ended up getting into doing a YouTube channel to talk about narcissism, but from more of a, I guess, persuasion, negotiation, rational point of view. Uh, on the one hand, understand the behaviors, understand how it works and how we can react to it. And I guess on the other hand, there's also the the observation that usually when we're, let's say, targeted, it's because we have vulnerabilities, which I think usually come from having trapped emotions that we haven't dealt with, of anger, sadness, and fear, but also sometimes having really dodgy ideas in our head. Uh, and I liken it to mind viruses. So if we have a vulnerability, it's easy for a bad idea to enter our mind, infiltrate our mind, take control of our mind. And so it's important to realize when we're being infiltrated, when ideas are really bad um, or unhelpful or inaccurate. And when we when we have a risk of having bad ideas, which is pretty much everyone, how can we identify the bad ideas to reduce the damage they will have on us and on others? So one of one of the images I take with this is imagine that you you bake an apple pie, and inside the apple pie there's some broken glass, and I point out there's a bit of broken glass inside the pie. Now I guess for you you'd be seeing the broken glass and think, well clearly there's a problem. I have to remove the apple. I, I'll take everything back and I'll check it. I'll bake another one. Other people would start debating, yeah, but there's also apple in that pie. You go, you know, I know there is but there's also broken glass in here. So what are you going to do about the glass? They go, well, there's more apple than glass. So why are you complaining? Why don't you just eat the apple bit? So this is sort of the way I see ideas. If somebody doesn't care about the difference between the broken glass and the apple pie, I'm not debating there's some apple in there, but I'm staying away from what they're serving me because on the off chance, I get a bit of broken glass and ending up in the hospital. Uh, and that's sort of the, the the approach I have with ideas and thinking and the the, the worldviews. You know, no one worldview is completely accurate, but most of us try to make our worldview less inaccurate and take into account feedback and conversations and other points of view and simply conversation with others. Um, you know, assuming we can learn something from other people, especially if they disagree with us and especially if they're willing to have a conversation. Yeah, and we find with with the individual who who is um, you know maybe has these toxic narcissistic traits that they're they're incapable of kind of of taking in different worldviews, different approaches, different perspectives than the one that they're already concretely adapted to, and then obviously all these uh, a lot of ideologies that we currently see swimming around us are um, have that have that same kind of uh, that rigidity rigidity and that that same kind of um, almost self conscious knee-jerk opposition to alternative um, viewpoints or ideas. Um, uh, I lost my train of, train of thought there. But you do, you do this great thing where, you, like you've already been demonstrating it, is uh, tackle these issues very rationally and almost mathematically. Like, if this, then this. You know, mm. you know, these three options, which is the most accurate, which is the most true to the situation. And I feel like if people can can apply that tactic to a lot of the ideologies they're saying, a lot of the tactics, um, it, it'll be very, very beneficial, I think. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really, these are the things that help me think more clearly. And it's really thinking, if someone says something, let's take it seriously. Let's consider it. And let's look at the validity of the the argument and then see how it unravels. And, you know, we, we, we could often shut down the conversation thinking, I disagree with this, so I won't listen. But how about we do listen? I mean, I, I had an eye-opening conversation with a, a self-avowed about xenophobe in Europe who was wanted to, to fight fight with me about different points of view, but instead of just attacking him and that wouldn't have that would have broken down the conversation, I just said, you know, I think you and I agree on most things. So he was completely surprised. And I said, well, you know, we both agree that this country should be a nice country for people to live here. He goes, yes. I simply have a different point of view regarding who's allowed to live here. You know, for me, if someone lives here for a certain number of years, they become a citizen. I guess for you it takes a few generations. I said, yes, there we go. All we disagree on is how much time it takes. And if a foreigner creates a crime, uh, cause it, well, uh, commits a crime here, I believe that they should get a second chance before getting deported. But I guess you believe they should just get deported immediately. Says so yes, there we go. Well, the only difference between us is how many warnings do they get? You think none. I think you know one, two, two might be too much, but I don't know. So being able to align with this was it me basically entering his mindset seeing where the difference was. And I got him to change his point of view and go, you know, actually, largely, we agree on many things. And maybe I'm being a little bit too harsh when I think that, you know, in every single circumstance, people should get deported after one um, after one crime. Maybe it's a bit too much. So I can I got him to change his point of view. And um, yeah, I think it's, it, it's, it's far more beneficial to have these points of view. But this is also because I wasn't so sort of insecure with my ideas. When it came to, to to talk to him, I was more curious. How does he think? What are the real differences? Where are we roughly aligned? And where are the differences? And having that kind of conversation, well, it was more effective in changing his mind than if I just tried to label him or attack him. Um, it, it kind of force, forces them to, to open their mind and, and, and think about their views in a much broader broader sense. Yeah, completely. And instead of having someone, you know, if someone attacks us, we get defensive. It's just normal. Whereas if somebody wants to engage with us and is curious and is able to help us feel comfortable, well, then we tend to open up and then it's much easier to make someone change the point of view. But, you know, when you, when you were mentioning before the, the ideologies, I remember uh, this was opening for me. I was talking with this therapist and I was asking, how come people are more willing to let other people die than to change their point of view, to let their ideas die. And what she said, she thought about it, she said, well, you know, there are two sides to our being. One side is our physical well-being, our body being alive, and the other side is our identity. And our brain doesn't really differentiate between the two. So if somebody attacks me physically, I might be killed. But if somebody tries to destroy my identity, I don't know who I am anymore. So I'm going to react as though it's a physical threat. So if someone challenges my ideas and my beliefs, well, I'm I'm likely to take this as being a threat to defend myself because I'm identifying myself with my ideas. And of course, well, then I realized the, the, the solution to that is to just stop identifying with ideas, to just realize ideas are just a map of reality. But if I have a map of Paris or a map of San Francisco, it's still me. And if I have a certain mirror in front of me, it's still me who's, you know, who's here, who's thing, who's doing the thinking. I'm not just my body. I'm not just the ideas. The ideas might be helpful, 
But if instead of trying to become the ideas, I see just which ones are helpful, help me get better outcomes, then I'm much less attached to the ideas. And especially if I think no single idea will answer 100% of the situations. No single idea is perfect. Like if, you, if you're in a house and you've got multiple windows, no one window will show you 100% of the world outside. So each of them can be valuable, but each of them have got limited utility. So if you've got a different window to mine, we can just compare notes. You know, you might be seeing a mountain and trees and I might be seeing a beach. Well, maybe both of them are out there, or maybe one of them is just a painting and it's not really a window. But if we can talk about it, we might get a better understanding of what's outside, or at least an understanding of what you're seeing, and try to think together to to understand why are we seeing different things. Uh, and I think just the the whole the whole process of having a dialogue is really important. But this is also where we see who is open to having a dialogue and who wants to impose the point of view. Who wants to impose? You know, I see a tree out there. Therefore, it's impossible that you tell me what you're seeing. In other words, you're calling me a liar, and that's a very different conversation. So instead of arguing, it's like, well, if you're calling me a liar, we need to talk about that. That's really different. Um, I actually have a, a, a diagram that I use to uh, that I use to try to model this to explain it, or to be able to visualize it. Would it be helpful if I show that to you? Oh, that'd be great. Okay. So here we go. So the model I use simply states that to to make a decision, there are four steps. The first step involves collecting data. This is uh, what we observe. The data gets fed into what I call an algorithm. This is how we're thinking. It's sort of our map of reality. It's how we process reality. This leads to a result. So we take the data, we process in the algorithm, that produces a result. So a, a model basically that, that we expect to see. And then we compare this to reality. And when we go from reality, that goes back to data. And this goes around as a circuit. Now, the three kinds of data. We have data, which is false. And of course, we don't want that because data that's false is, well, misleading. If we try to if if we try to have or to make decisions based on false data, we're going to probably get really bad outcomes and reality is going to, you know, bite us in the back. Uh, then we've got data which is true and relevant. And the scary one is data which is true plus irrelevant. And it's not always clear which data is true and relevant and which data is true and irrelevant. Now, to make a really good decision, we need to be having, to be focusing on the true and relevant data, and we need to make sure that we do not have any cognitive biases. In other words, our algorithm is functioning at 100% of capacity. If the algorithm is at 90% and the data's at 90%, we only get 81% of quality of outcome. If it's 80 and 80, that's only 64%. And if it's 50% and 50%, that's only 25% quality of outcome. Now, all of us have got you know, flawed algorithms. We don't process data well. We don't think clearly, despite the fact that we do think clearly. And our, our map of reality doesn't, well, we don't know how to process it well. So that's one problem. We need to be able to, to clarify the algorithm. And then when it comes to the data, it's not 100% clear which data is relevant, which data is irrelevant, and sometimes which data is just false. 
sometimes we see results of studies, and when we see how the study was made, we go, that, that's ludicrous. It's not even true. It's just absolutely false. But sometimes it's you know probably true, but largely irrelevant. Uh, and yeah, when when we confused about when we confused about the data and confused about the algorithm, this, this leads to a result that probably is not really helpful. And then if we compare to reality, well, we realize that it doesn't it doesn't add up. It doesn't work out. When I was speaking before about identity, we often believe that our algorithm is us. So when someone says, for example, I am a something ist. I'm a capitalist, I'm a communist, I'm a socialist. They are identifying with the algorithm. They are saying, this is me, this is my identity. How they get there often is they start with the result they want, then they retroactively figure out which algorithm leads me to that, and then they cherry pick the data that helps them get to the result they want. And then when they compare it to reality and they realize that there's a mismatch, well, they consider that the problem is reality, so if only I can change reality, then my result will be accurate. But there's a big problem with trying to change reality is it's a bit more complex than we think. And who who am I to impose, you want to want to change reality for others? Like reality is also a conversation with others, accepting nature, accepting people, accepting groups, accepting complexity that goes way beyond my comprehension. And and we we, we see this often, this is where we get cognitive dissonance. My result doesn't match reality, therefore one of the two is wrong. Of course, reality can't really be wrong, but I refuse to accept that my result is wrong. So therefore there should be a problem somewhere. Logically we'd go, well, let me check my data, let me check my algorithm. If I think I'm walking towards the Eiffel Tower, but I get into the, the Golden Gate Bridge, well, maybe I need to check my map. But if people refuse to change the data, refuse to change the algorithm, well, that tends to lead to a result that simply is inaccurate. And then that's when we, 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 well, we find the cognitive dissonance. And especially when people are reluctant to admit they might be wrong, they tend to fall into the, the trap of thinking, if I can persuade everyone else that I'm right, then at least I have unanim unanimity of opinion. You know, So let me tell other people that I'm right, because if, if I can convince them, then, then clearly my result is right. And well, maybe we can you know, pretend that reality is something different than what it is, or we create a new reality. But this is usually linked to simply a difficulty to actually just accept that, well, we don't get everything right 100% of the time. How does that, how does that speak to you guys? I think that's brilliant. I think this can be applied in <laughs> limitless uh, situations. Yeah, it really speaks, I think, to a number of things that we're seeing socially happen right now where people have these very, like in identity politics, these very rigid ideas about how they identify and are actually skewing and creating data in order to reinforce their identity. Yeah, I think it's, it's I mean, it's what I've observed also. And the whole notion of, you know, how someone identifies, we, it's interesting to, 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 to switch labels. Like if someone says, I'm a vegetarian, I'm a vegan, that's part of their identity to a large extent. But if someone says, I don't eat peanuts, that's part of my identity, you don't really hear that. So why is it that one dietary choice would be part of an identity and another one wouldn't? Well, you can say, well, there's some level of ethics behind it, you know, maybe. But we could also say, you're you, and what you do or your choices doesn't change who you are. You're, you're you, regardless of 
whatever label you put, you're just you, you're just you, you're a human being, and pretty much everything else is irrelevant. You know, you're born as a human. Well, you know, you're born, you're going to die. You've got family and friends, you've got social interactions, you've got emotions you're trying to deal with, you've got hardships you're trying to deal with and trying to overcome. Largely, all of the rest is irrelevant. That's, you know, is what I've seen working with some uh, different healers and so on, is this is what unites us. When people are trying to overcome hardships and we're talking together, we can help each other out. And the rest, it's, it's much less important than you're stuck in a difficult situation and we hope that things are going to get better for you and we can see how we can work together and how we can we can help each other out because we're going to be dead before we know it so if we can help each other out it makes the world a slightly nicer place one it's one slight not an objection but i'm wondering how this how this fits in is like because we're obviously very social beings and we seek out others that reflect ourselves and you know we, we form communities and kind of group identifications and we we find others you know we find the other to to have as the them you know to solidify the us and i think the algorithm what you've done you know kind of identified as the algorithm here is is part of i guess kind of is is that category that identity category that it's not it's partly to describe ourselves and then partly to to identify with a larger group, which I think is human nature, and we can't really undo it. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, I, I hear what you mean. I think so. It's rather funny where 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 I'm staying these days. Recently, there was a these days. There's been a, a heavy metal festival, and it's really interesting to see people going there, all dressed the same. And it it, it was rather remarkable because I I was just observing that they all look really nice, like a bunch of really cute teddy bears, uh, trying to look really mean. But they just look pretty well, like nice people queuing up, being super polite to each other. Whereas about, I think, 20, 30 years ago, you're more likely to get headbutted if you showed up in some kind of bizarre costume. Uh, so it's become really, really sweet. But there's a high level of tribalism that is there of we're gonna follow the codes to sort of see how we can fit in. Now, I understand wanting to find people we fit in with. And at the same time, we can ask the question. And this is more of an open question. If we're okay with ourselves, accepting ourselves, which is one of the hardest things to do, to what extent do we need to find other people to quote unquote validate or invalidate us? Like I'd be comfortable going to a metal festival wearing a suit because I'm comfortable wearing a suit and I really don't think it's that important what I'm wearing if I like the music. And I know also that I wouldn't be as well received as if I was wearing a Pantera t-shirt. Uh, so I think the, di the different levels of acceptance, I think it's easy to find the, the acceptance with the external appearance, and it's much harder to find the acceptance of ourselves. Uh, and I've also been there, of course, seeing people who, who share the same tastes, the same uh, values, the same logic, uh, and who look the same. It's, it's, it's perfectly normal. I think we, we're hardwired to that tribal acceptance. But I think once we go beyond that and we try to accept ourselves, it's a different mission. Um, and then once we've done that, the first one of trying to seek out people who will validate our identity or will, will help us accept ourselves, it becomes a bit less important. Does that make any sense? No, it makes it makes perfect sense, and it also it also speaks to the fact that a lot of the people who kind of get swept up in I ideologies are um, typically young, right? In that stage of life where you're kind of 
you're insecure about your who you are as a person and you haven't you know developed a sense of identity and then also people who who just don't do that people who don't mature into a concrete sense of self or a, or a you know who don't who yeah who, who aren't just secure in who they are and their beliefs and their um preferences and whatnot so people who are kind of you know wishy-washy in that way are, are going to so basically i agree with everything you're saying i just think that it's 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 ambitious to expect most people to ration like to, to, you know do you know what i mean like it's how, how realistic is it so it's uh yeah i i think that there are no expectations there i think with this it's simply in in my approach everyone does their best if we can share models that help us see reality with a bit more a bit more nuance then maybe it helps people navigate a bit but whatever rocks their boat uh you know i i i push the self-discovery to pretty uh, far extremes in terms of really going deep 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 inside it worked for me and if it works for someone else to, to head over to a metal concert and just you know uh, but put on a Metallica t-shirt and cool, whatever works as long as people are happy and as long as it's working, for, as long as they're getting the result that makes them happy, then it's great. And even if it doesn't make them happy, if they want to be in this kind of circuit, then fine, that's fine. If they want to reach out, then, you know, people are going to be there to support them. Uh, fortunately, then I think simply, so let's, let's put it this way. Growing up, we're really vulnerable. We're looking for a sense of identity, and we can argue that the sense of identity is a lifelong quest that never really, never really ends. You know, to, to know who we are is incredibly ambitious. And I think we, like, even a few days ago, I was doing a psychometrics test. I learned a lot of stuff about myself. And you could go, well, you're supposed to know this, like, maybe, but I didn't. So I'm still learning. So I think to continue learning and understanding ourselves is helpful. If we can identify which ideas help us understand ourselves better, and help us get better outcomes, that's helpful. And if we can see which ideas make it harder to get the right outcomes, then it's easier to select which ideas we want to have in our head. And this is sort of the, let's say, an, an inaccurate map of reality, a map of Paris when you're in San Francisco. It might be a beautiful map, but if it doesn't help you navigate at that moment when you're in San Francisco, Maybe try not using it, or maybe just consider that there might be something else. Maybe gain a bit of flexibility to adapt based on the circumstances. Uh, and I think just this, this flexibility is rather important. And large part, I think like you said also before, is negotiation with our surroundings. If people demand that we're one person who isn't us, well, okay, good luck to them. But if we want people to acknowledge that we are a person who we think we are, well, it's, it's a healthy thing that there's a bit of a negotiation. If people are too reluctant, we might just want to step away. But also, it's rather healthy to have people check, you know, and go, really? Are you sure? I mean, you were one person yesterday, and you know, now that you started uni, you started identifying with these ideas. Are you, how valid are these ideas? You're trusting this person because it's a professor. But now when I look back at the press, actually, I bumped into one of my, my former professors, and now that I've learned to see emotions in people's faces, I just see so much anger and resentment and bitterness. And I think, I actually allowed ideas from this from this guy to enter my head, and I saw the world through his lens. But when I look at him, he's a miserable guy, super smart, but miserable, and his ideas are inaccurate. And I can dismantle a number of the ideas, and I can show the shortcomings and how the framing is misleading, and how how he's been he was pushing us to get a specific result, come to specific conclusions by being misleading in the data. And I think you know. He's actually a dangerous person, 
to leave around young minds. And remember that the brain develops until we're 25. The personality develops for a long time. So to just give one point of view and say this is the only one that's valid and use contempt and scorn and uh, shame and guilt for anyone who doesn't agree, well, that's just manipulation tactics. And you know his point of view has got some merit, but it's very low resolution. When he says, you know, the history of uh, European countries is only this thing. It's just very low resolution. And a lot of points he completely did not understand. He doesn't know it. Of course, he doesn't know what he doesn't know, but it's just low resolution thinking. So, you know, I think this is part of what I've observed. If we can offer higher resolution thinking, then people make up their own mind and everyone gets to decide which ideas are valid for them by comparing ideas. One of the, the challenges with postmodernism is that we can't even agree on what's reality, right? They, they don't believe in objective reality, which, which skews this entire cycle, right? If you, can't, if you can't count on there being fundamental truths. Yeah, that's, I mean, this is, so I know relatively well that approach. When I was, when I was studying, we asked some of our professors about the postmodern authors and they were just saying, just ignore them. They don't even make any sense to themselves. It's it's gibberish. Uh, they were literally saying, "Is you know, we try to understand it. It's gibberish." These are people who are reading the postmodernists in French, mind you. A lot of Americans read the translation. When I compare even just the titles of the original French and the translation, the translation is misleading. And when you translate into English, you tend to provide a different thought structure. So people are reading an interpretation of the original text by an American or English speaking translator, but it's not the original ideas. And you can actually just go through the translation and see to what extent it is misleading. So it's really it's really dangerous to embrace somebody's ideas when they've been translated without access to the originals or without understanding French perfectly. And I'm fluent in French. So without understanding it perfectly, you're letting in ideas, especially that might seem to make sense. But remember our, our brains like filling in the gaps and in postmodernism, there are a lot of things where you have to fill in the gap and assume you understand. But to me, this is like the apple pie and the broken glass. Like if something isn't clear, either the person is incapable of explaining it clearly, so that's broken glass, or the person is trying to mislead me, so that's broken glass too. If I can't read the text and with not too much thinking understand it, understanding also that the problem isn't my IQ. You know, otherwise, when you study, you think it is, but just get your IQ tested. If you're above a certain level, you'll know if it's your IQ. Uh, you know, if you're, you're trying to bridge the gaps too much, then there's a problem with the, the source material. But what they do here is they try to, like you said, deny reality. But if you deny reality, you no longer have anything to compare the results to, which means they make us float. In this type of system, which is all about I'll tell you the result, you'll work, actually, it's all about the result. I'll tell you the result, you work it out. And I'll tell you whatever algorithm, and the data doesn't even exist anymore because nothing is true, nothing makes sense, and nothing is nothing. Uh, but, you know, this is one system they have. You know, we could actually, how about this? We could have the postmodern system, and then the, uh, just say the other, you know, system, system two. We compare them. The system I offered and their system. Which one lead, which one yields the best results? Just compare. Which map of reality helps someone navigate best? If their map helps people navigate best, you gotta to explain to me the state people are in after they embrace postmodern ideas. 
Because when I see it, it's catastrophic. I do not see people who whose words match the facial expressions. The, the facial expressions are full of micro expressions and macroaggressions of anger and frustration and resentment and a lot of times sadness they haven't processed and a lot of fear. When you hear them, they, they, they talk about fear. When you try to dig underneath what they're really afraid of, it's figments of their imagination. It, it's, it's just bizarre. And they often assume that, you know, of all of the explanations of something, you've got the worst possible one. Let's say the most, there we go, most, I'll erase that, the most charitable. You know, my, my general approach is assuming, let's start with this. Let's assume that it's a rather charitable explanation. And then based on data, we might work our way down. Their approach is to say, the worst one is the only acceptable one. And everything else is just completely disregarded. I assume they are of good faith and they're just a bit misguided. But if we have a conversation, they might open their mind. They would assume that I'm an evil, horrible person who's lived a life of, you know, just being horrible to other people, but they've never even spoken to me. You know, th th this, by the way, is the. Are you familiar with Daryl Davis? I'm not. Oh, oh my goodness, you're going to love him. Daryl Davis is he, he's got a TED talk, which is why do I become friends with Ku Klux Klan members? And you think that's a bit weird, but then you see him, he's an African-American jazz musician. And you go, why would an African-American man become friends with Ku Klux Klan members? And he just explains, you know, I'm really curious, how can they hate me if they don't even know me? So instead of attacking them and making them defensive, he just has conversations with them about history, about the history of the Klan, history of the United States, and they end up becoming friends. And these people end up going, I can't embrace a philosophy that makes me want to hate my friend. So they leave the clan. He's made more than 200 people leave the clan. He's got a system that yields results. You can't argue with that. But if somebody goes and attacks clan members, I don't think they've ever got a single person to change their mind. So which system do you want? Well, I want the one that helps get more people out of the Ku Klux Klan because it, it works. It's got the best result. So when we compare the systems, let's see, let's see, based on data and reality, which one works. But of course, because they've got a completely inferior system, they want to remove this so they can simply impose theirs. And, you know, and largely, when you look at the, uh, the postmodernists, there's something that a lot of people don't know. Are, are you familiar with this? The um, open letter they penned in, uh, I think it was Le Monde in 1975, against the age of consent laws in France? Did you hear about that? No. Oh, my goodness. So I think it was in 1975, France wanted to introduce laws to make it illegal for an adult to have sexual intercourse with a child below the age of, I think it was 12 or 14, something something like that, or 16. That wasn't already on the books? No, 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 it was, it was perfectly fine. And all of these intellectuals, you can look up the list, uh, including Foucault, Sartre, de Beauvoir, they were against it. Even... Um, uh, Françoise Dolto, who is known as being one of the, the main child psychologists, signed the letter saying sexuality is an important part of children's education, you know, and growing up. So if you know a, a child wants to have sexual intercourse with an adult, why would you deprive them of it? And you read this, you go like, this it must be hoax. It's not possible. But that was, you know, their point of view. Uh, de Beauvoir was known for. When? I think 75. 
If you look it up. Oh my God. Okay. It's amazing. De Beauvoir was known for wanting to have sexual intercourse with her male students. Sartre was okay with it. Uh, they, they had an open relationship. And at one point, she wanted to sleep with Albert Camus, the French philosopher, who, even though he was a bit of a libertine, turned her down. He wasn't really interested in sleeping with his friend's wife. And Sartre became became really upset. He took it as a personal insult. And, you know, th this is what you're sort of dealing with. But if you put yourself back in the, back, you know, back in them, back in the time, they grew up with a much more socially repressive society where there was very little freedom to do anything. And they were sort of rebelling against that. So to have this point of view in the 60s and 70s is very different to having the 2020s, where hopefully we're a little bit more balanced now. So as a product of their time, fine. We should also be aware how they were thinking back then. They didn't want to accept reality because they viewed reality as being oppressive. That was the 1960s and 70s, and they were probably getting intellectually formed in the 1940s and 50s. It was very different back then. But if we understand where the ideas come from, we can filter out the dodgy bits. We can see what is still relevant, sort of filtering out the, you know, the apple pie and the broken glass. There's, there's a lot of broken glass in there. So it, it can be an interesting exercise to think, let's take a step back and see if we can make any sense of it. But let's be really careful with these ideas. Mm -hmm. uh, but this is, how they, this is how they apply it. Remove reality so nobody can challenge them. So I, you know, we can't challenge reality, we observe it. So it's independent of what we want. But they, th the way they dealt with frustration is highly akin to the way that narcissists deal with frustration. It's just anger. I mean, it reminds me of the first time I went surfing. I missed the waves. I was getting angry at the waves. What did that say about me? I wasn't a very good surfer because I was starting, and I didn't deal with frustration. Luckily, I, you know, I, I grew up pretty quickly thinking, well, I can get angry, but the waves don't care, so what am I going to do? But my ego was really hurt. I, I wanted to control it. It was, it was really fascinating to observe. I mean, we hear the, the term cancel culture a lot these days. Uh, you know, cancel yeah. culture is basically narcissism at a societal level. And it, and it prevents us from, from going through the process of critical thinking. It just automatically jumps to your ideas are bad or you're somehow morally defective. Therefore, you need to be canceled. And so there's no deeper analysis. There's no deeper process at an individual level. To, to think yep. through ideas, to have conversations with people, or to tolerate differences of opinion. That's, listen, it's, it's very true. The thing is, when it comes to, how should I put it? When it comes to, um, when it comes to ideas, few ideas are perfect. Yeah, I'm just thinking if I should, I'll just try like this. Few ideas are perfect. Ideas will always have some positive points and some negative points. Now, we're very good at seeing the good side, and usually we've got a blind spot when it comes to the bad side. The thing is, if we can reduce the negative part, we're de facto making the positive part bigger. So the best way to do it is to simply examine the ideas together, put forth an idea, ask what other people think, and have trust that, that the good ideas will win, truth will win, and truth acts like a disinfectant. So if there's a bad idea somewhere and we shine truth on it, the bad ideas shrivel away. But what happens is when, when the bad ideas enter someone's mind, so this is uh, it's pretty much what happens. The bad ideas, the algorithm, enter someone's mind. And um, because they know that truth is going to expose them as being bad ideas, they make the person identify with the ideas and become defensive. 
because any normal person or healthy person would think, I'm probably going to learn something. Let's talk about it. Let's let's go and debate the the, the people with the worst ideas possible. Daryl Davis does that. Let me go and talk to Ku Klux Klan members. I did that with the the ultra xenophobe guy. Like, let me talk to him. He's a human being. The ideas are something different. But if we have a conversation, let me see if I can uncover some, you know, some lack of nuance, some bad ideas. And it worked, and it does work. So who would not want this? Well, the people who know they're possessed by really bad ideas. And it's so fascinating to see because I've not yet come across really dodgy ideas that resist scrutiny. You know, that's what I do with this method. Let's let's scrutinize it. Let's take it seriously. If a person says, you know, the reason why a relationship fell apart is because you did this. Let's look at this with merit. Okay. So this one reason, according to you, is why it fell apart. So if I hadn't done that, we'd still be together? That's not serious. You know, it's because I didn't put the, you know, the, the top on the toothpaste. That's not that. that. That doesn't make sense. So let's really take it seriously and examine it. Come forth with your ideas. I come forth with mine. And then we, we start comparing. But those who don't want to do it are the ones who want to operate in the dark. And if you don't compare the ideas, then it's just a matter of power. This is what the, the postmodernists say. Everything's about power. There's nothing else but power. I had this, this conversation actually with um, some, some activists when I was at uni uh, because they, what is it? We, we, we spoke about some people wanting to go on strike at university. They said, we have to go on strike to defend the rights and these things. And I said, well, I hear you. And what about students who come from underprivileged backgrounds who have to work to be able to get through the year to pay for the studies because their mum and dad aren't paying and they can't afford to miss courses and they probably have a part-time job on the side. They can't afford to do this. How does your legitimacy trump theirs? What about them? And this, this is why I started falling out with these people. They basically said, yeah, they're two legitimacies, so the strongest one wins, and we're stronger. And you know, you you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. We'll sacrifice them. And from my point of view, you know, these are individuals, these are humans. You don't sacrifice humans. You you that that's where I draw the line. I'll always be on the side of humans. I'll be fighting the bad ideas, but not the humans. So when you're willing to sacrifice humans, you're on the side of the narcissists, of the ideologues. And like um, I don't remember who it was. So someone's mentioning that, you know, you, you can't make an omelet without breaking eggs. Well, show me the omelet. There's not much of an omelet there. They're just people who enjoy breaking eggs. And that's what I saw with these people. They, 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 they even had an infight between inside factions. And one person was saying, when there was a fallout saying, this other woman who was a assistant at university People should show up at a course and destroy her, humiliate her, because all she has is her uh, is a status. So they should destroy her psychologically. And I realized, like, I don't like her, but I'm not going to destroy her. I'll disagree with her, but I'm never going to try to humiliate her and attack her. Like, where where is that coming from? And I look back, and yeah, it's resentful, frustrated, bitter people. I can't tell if people were narcissists before getting infiltrated by these ideas, but they certainly acted like narcissists and psychopaths afterwards. You know, willing to sacrifice humans? Seriously? That's what psychopaths do. The rest of us, we stick together. We talk it out. You know, but before you kick someone out of the cave, you make sure that there's no alternative. If someone's poisoning the well, that's something else. If someone's threatening us, that's something else. 
when someone makes us fight between ourselves, that's the psychopath. And that's what they do. As long as we're fighting, we don't see them. Maybe that's why they make us fight. We seem to be in a cultural climate right now where if you want to be the one like, um, you know, asking the question, why are we doing this? Or why can't we talk to this person? Or why can't I, you know, engage with this idea more? It, it's like a moral failing. It's, it's seen as a moral failing if you're willing to have an open mind or to care for people who everybody else is disagreeing with or to want to save somebody's career from, you know, ruin because they said something you don't like. You're seen as moral, as, as a moral failure by not wanting to behave in these really toxic, narcissistic ways to people who you would otherwise disagree with. That's what's so, yeah, so, so infuriating and seems so impossible to combat because, yeah, it's like this, this moral climate. Well, sh shall we break this down? Just, you know, see what's really going on? It's rather fun to do. Okay. First of all, I learned this from a guy, bless him, when I was in, in, in Kenya and I was getting through this terrible breakup with a narcissist and I was running through all these things and he basically we went at some some lodge in, in the Masai Mara doing a safari. And he said, you know, I used to be an alcoholic. I hear you. I've seen all this stuff before. And he showed me this model. And the model is the sort of who is the judge. There is you. There's another person. Uh, actually, let's do it this way. There's you. There's me. And let's say that we have a disagreement. There is the judge. Who is the judge when we have a disagreement? Are you the judge? Or am I the judge? Or is it someone else? Who judges? Typically somebody else. Who's that person? Depends on the context. If, <laughs> if it's just you and me, you and me have a disagreement. We disagree about something. I think most people would I tell you I'm that, right. Most people would think that themselves are the judge. Because yeah. they would, they would want an outcome. They would want a result that they're happy with. Exactly. But the thing is, the thing is, if we have a disagreement, we can just talk to each other and just work it out. Like, you know, you want to go to an Italian restaurant. I want to go to a Japanese restaurant. Well, you know, we can, or e e even differently, uh, let's say we go to a restaurant, the food is good, the food isn't good. You know, who who's the judge? Well, you've got your point of view, I've got mine. Narcissists will claim that they are the judge. That's why they refuse to be challenged. That's why when you've got a different point of view, they feel threatened because they want to judge. This is the best band. This is the best restaurant in town. These are the good ideas. This is how you should think. This is how you should behave. And if you disagree, you're challenging me, which is unforgivable. Therefore, you're wrong. But according to, and this is what narcissists do. So with, with this woman, she was saying, well, you know, you've done this. You've you've disappointed me. You didn't do what I expected. You 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 know you fell short uh, on all of those things. She was acting as a judge, but the only judge, according to to this model, I think Alcoholics Anonymous use it, is the judge is the universe. It's God. It's karma. It's whatever you call it. You've got your point of view. I've got my point of view. We talk and we see what happens. And if you don't like it, walk away. And if I don't like it, I walk away. And the only thing that we inclusion we have is we had a disagreement and your opinion was that I'm an idiot. Okay, fine. You're entitled to that opinion. It doesn't tell me I'm an idiot. It just tells me your opinion is I'm an idiot. I can listen to it, but why should I listen to you? Maybe you've got arguments. Maybe you've got examples. There was a woman some years ago who accused me of being arrogant. And I was a bit surprised. I asked her, 
could you give me could you give me an example of when I was arrogant? She goes, huh, there you are. There you are. You're being arrogant again. Huh, that's ex- typical you. I go, what do you mean? Why can't I just say that you're arrogant? Why should I have to back it up with anything? Like, well, if you back it up with something, I can learn something. I'm willing to change. I'm willing to listen to you. But I need at least one example of being arrogant and asking you to actually come up with arguments because I believe you've got arguments and you must have more than zero examples. You know, that, that that's what I believe is the case. But if you have exactly zero examples and you've never seen me be arrogant apart from asking you to try to argue, well, I can live with that. You know, if that's arrogance for you, okay, <laughs> that's fine. You've just defined it. And this, you know, this is how they this is how they work in terms of judging. They don't accept to be challenged. They don't accept that your point of view is equally valid to theirs. They want to impose their point of view. That's what happens when we're ultra insecure, but also when we like power. But let me show you another one. Are you familiar with transactional analysis? Does that ring a bell? No. Oh my goodness. You're going to love this. This was created by a guy called Eric Berner. And he wrote a book called Games People Play. And I think at one point I'll be doing a, a you know, a book or a video called Games Narcissists Play, because this is, it's so funny. The idea is we can enact different ego states and we can move between ego states depending on the situation. So right now, all of us are adults. As adults, we are rational and we have space for emotions. We can talk about things. Something makes you sad, we talk about it, but we've got some level of logic and we roughly control the way our mind functions. Okay. Then the second ego state is the ego state of the child. And children want two things. They want to feel safe and they want to be loved. This is because when we were little cave children, uh, actually feeling safe and being loved. Yeah, when we, so, being safe is about our survival and being loved. When we were little cave children, if there were 10 children and a saber-tooth tiger was about to attack us, we know which one was going to be sacrificed, the one that was the least loved. So you better be loved by your parents if you want to stay safe and you, and you want your DNA to reproduce. So we, we're hardwired to be liked and to be loved and to make sure that we, we're safe inside the cave. And you know, we just have to think in terms of in terms of humanity. It isn't that long that we've been living outside of caves. So we really dislike being rejected, especially from a child uh, from a tribe. We like feeling safe because we're hardwired for this. And if people don't believe that, just watch the cat and cucumber videos. How do you explain that cats are terrified of cucumbers? It's in their DNA, because they think cucumbers are snakes. You know, it's long and green with no legs. They. If everything about us was simply acquired after birth, cats wouldn't care about cucumbers, but they're terrified. This is proof, and there's loads of proof, that we have ancient memory in our DNA. This is, I didn't believe it existed when I saw it. That's one time when I completely revised my worldview. My algorithm is going, my algorithm tells me this shouldn't happen. I see it happening all the time. I guess I'm wrong, you know, again. Um, so that's a child. There are four types of children. The first one is the natural child. The natural child is the one that runs around, asks questions, likes playing, wants to know how things are. Uh, why are things this way? Come and play with me. Because when children understand things and they ask questions, get answers, they can grow into an adult. Playing is about learning. That's why we love playing. We love learning because we're hardwired to become adults. We can be, 
well, adults. First one. The second one is the adapted child. The adapted child is the child who has to change the behavior, adapt the behavior, stay safe and be loved. The adapted child is the one to whom we say, stop asking so many questions, go and clean your room, don't do this. If you don't adapt your behavior, there's the threat that we won't love you anymore, therefore you won't be safe. Then we have the rebel. The rebel is the teenager, the one who says, you want me to clean my room? Have you seen your room? Your room's a hell of a mess. You're just a hypocrite. It's interesting when people go demonstrating, they're enacting rebels because they basically say, we want somewhere to do something to solve our problems. Adults don't do that. Adults do what they can to solve the problems. But when you go and say, I'm going to make a lot of noise, try to get, get the parents to do something, we're just enacting the rebels. There's merit to it. It can work. And it's amusing to see psychologically what we're doing. The last one is the little professor. And the little professor is the one who believes that if only they can show everyone how smart they are, they're going to be loved. If they've shown, they've understood, they, they learned the homework, they're going to be loved. These are the ones who get super targeted by really dodgy ideas. Because if they can show the professor, the, you know, the figure of authority, I embrace your ideas. I'll pretend I know it. I'll enact the fact that I know it. Maybe you're going to love me. I'm going to be safe. And you can go, you don't really understand it. It's like, shh, just let, let's pretend. Let's pretend because I'm not comfortable challenging as an adult would. I want to be liked. And then finally, we have the parent. And the parent is any figure of authority, which is a parent, a policeman, policewoman, professor, teacher, doctor, anyone who's a figure of authority. We've got two of them. We have the nurturing one, the one who says, oh, well done. That's really interesting. Congratulations. We're so proud of you. You really learned the lesson well. That's fantastic. And then you have the critical parent. The critical parent is the one who goes, that's not what we were expecting of you. Hmm. I see that you are enacting this kind of ideology. You know, it seems that you don't care about these people. And when they start having this, if they have any authority, they force us into being an adapted child or a little professor. What? You don't care about the oppressed and the marginalized? Hmm. What kind of person does that make you? So how do we react? Well, if we're at university, we'll react like an adapted child. Oh my goodness, I did something wrong. I'm being scolded. When the whole framework of you don't care, that's narcissistic manipulation. Like, you don't care. You mean on a scale between zero and a hundred, I care specifically exactly at zero? No, that's stupid. That's a stupid thing. I don't care at a hundred. Sure, I can't care at a hundred about every single thing. But maybe I care more than zero. But by framing it as being, you either care or you don't. You either do what I tell you or you're a bad person. That's just manipulation. It's very effective. Very, very effective. And it's very scary. And if someone doesn't care, so what? We've only got limited time and capacity. But narcissists are all about the, I want you to behave a certain way. So I'm going to manipulate you. One of the best ways is guilt tripping you. Acting like the parent. Acting. It's this thing about being the judge. I'm the judge. How dare you? How dare you challenge me? I'm going to tell you what to do. I want the power. And they, they, 
this is one of the weird things in relationship with narcissists is they'll be doing, uh, see, they'll be playing the nurturing parent, which makes us feel amazing as a natural child. You're amazing. You're so talented. I finally find someone like that. You're the best, just exactly the way you are. We fall in love with them. And before we know it, they switch to critical parent and they tell us that our virtues of yesterday are our flaws of today. Actually, you're not such a good musician. That music is sing out of tune. I don't know what's wrong. Your food is disgusting. I can't believe I fell for someone like you. You're a bit of a loser. They don't walk away. They just create this unhealthy balance to turn us into adapted child. How does that speak to you? When we were uh, first corresponding uh, offline and I was uh, saying how I fell in, this is how, and I think a lot of this happens to a lot of people that you fall into these kind of, um, uh, so so I've always been quite um, uh, protected. Uh, I'm, I don't fall for manipulation, like interpersonal manipulation. I see it a mile away and I'm like, stay the hell away from me. I don't want any of this in my life. And I just don't. And I, and I see friends and stuff following for those kind of interpersonal manipulations. And I just don't understand. I'm like, why are you doing this? It's so clear. This person's trying to manipulate you. Just don't, just don't behave the way they want you to behave. Just knock it off. Um, it's, and it frustrates me when I see that happening. Um, but when it came from a, an external movement, I felt hook, line, and sinker because you see that kind of critical, judgmental, um, uh, that, that, manipul that, that manipulative tactic to me felt like I didn't see it as manipulation. I saw it as this person knows more than me. This group sees an injustice that I just wasn't aware of. And it is this terrible, awful thing. And I need to step up and do everything I can to fix this thing that I didn't know was a problem five minutes ago. Whereas like if it was an individual saying, I can't believe you don't care about this. I'd be like, of course I care. Fuck off, you know? Sorry for the, <laughs> but the, the, the swear in our, in our very uh, <laughs> upscale video here. Um, it's appropriate. But, yeah, right. Um, but uh, but yeah, when it when it was like um, you know marginalized people are dying left and right, I'm like, oh my god, you're right. Let's let's fix this. Um, and I think I think a lot of people fall into that that category where it's like we we can identify it interpersonally, but we can't identify it when it's yeah when when it's more of a large scale issue. From from an ethics point of view, what what they're saying is the end justifies the means because if if what mm -hmm. I'm after is a certain result and that result I see as justice, who doesn't want to get on board with the result of justice and treating people fairly and and and, not, and the people not being harmed? And so they think, well, I I get to treat you then as badly as I want to because you're a bad person and you're getting in the way of this just result that I'm looking for. Yeah, that's very much the case. We, we have a goal. The goal is great. If you're not on board with us, you're against us. That's, of course, really faulty logic. This also brings us back to you know this diagram. What they say is true, but to what extent is it relevant? You know, Of all of the causes in the world, you get to choose which ones you want to focus on. It's your right. You don't have to choose everything. And if you choose something, you, know, you choose something, it doesn't have to be objectively the most important, assuming we can decide which is the most important, you get to choose whatever you want to do. Like you, you want to focus on helping the, the little grannies living around your corner? Do it. Anyone doing anything is better than something than, than doing nothing. So you've got the people trying to do something and the people trying to control what other people do. 
And that element of control is where the problem is. And they use the, the manipulation tactics to elicit certain responses from you, to, to, to guilt trip you, to shame you, to make you do something. But you're allowed to, to pick whatever cause you want. And we can even start asking the question, well, why are they picking one cause over another? I saw that being in, being in Africa and seeing to what extent it would be possible to help LGBT refugees in Kenya coming from Uganda just eat. And I tried contacting people in the US and they said, you know, BLM people. And they said, well, our priority is helping people in America. Okay, fair enough. I, you have every right to decide that you don't care about the people in Africa. You've got other, more stuff on your plate. Fair enough. And I've got every right to decide that my dollars and my time go further helping people in Kenya and helping people in the US. You know, if if everyone's situation is better, then everything's fine. There, there are enough causes for everyone to work on. And if someone's cause is, let me try to get my life on track, that's a pretty worthy cause. That's a really good investment. Maybe it's the most important one. Start working on ourselves before we start doing something else. Uh, and it's not easy to get a life on track. Um, and actually, what I see quite often is when we, when people jump into causes or they want to do some kind of activism, there's usually something unsolved inside of them. And that means that when they do the activism, they're significantly less effective than if they gave themselves a few years simply to mature and learn a bit more. Uh, they're quite often reactive in terms of emotions. They're angry about something. Anger is a good motivator, but a very bad strategist. When I see people trying to base strategy on anger, it doesn't work. I mean, the, the result they get usually is simply to express the anger and break a lot of things. That's the goal. They want to break things. But breaking things is not very constructive. Or maybe it's not the best strategy out there. But when we're angry, we don't think that clearly. So it's, it's fascinating to see. Uh, and yeah, I think, I think quite often what's happening is you have someone who's in a, a child situation, instead of working to actually become an adult, you know, like more full-time adults, they focus on the rebel side. It's much easier. As a rebel, you have a figure of authority you can fight against. But the real person to fight against, or that the real place to do the fighting is inside of us. Once we overcome, you know, it goes back to us. Once we overcome the challenges we have inside, we're so much more effective in navigating the world. And quite often the rest is just noise to prevent ourselves from looking inside because we don't know how to do it. We don't know where to start. We're afraid of it. We know it's going to be painful. And I think quite often we, we see this. It's like, it's the hope. If only I can find a cause somewhere, then everything's going to be okay. Like, yeah, maybe. You know, maybe it's easier to change 7 billion people than change myself. It certainly feels that way. But maybe I should start with myself. And then I can do, you know, something a bit more realistic to try to make something small a little bit better. So it requires a bit of humility, but that's, uh, I think that that comes more easily with age. Um, but also knowing, knowing that there's something we can start with and that it's going to work and that, and that the people trying to tell us where put our attention, well, maybe we shouldn't be listening to those people. Maybe people can offer things, suggest things, but respect our decision, regardless of what we want. And those who don't respect our, our, um, our right to disagree with them, well, maybe we shouldn't be associating with them because they're, well, if they're not respecting us, then, you know, they're, they're probably the last people we want to have around us.
Good points. Um, before we before we wrap up and kind of on this on the parent child uh, diagram here, um, a lot of the people who, who who listen to our podcast and hopefully watch the YouTube, everybody should be watching rather than listening to this one. But um, uh, 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 a lot of them are. Um, adults, a lot of them are parents of teenagers or young people who've been wrapped up in an ideology, right? And so I was wondering if, mm -hmm. if you could give maybe maybe concrete, not concrete advice, but you know what I mean? Like how, how mm -hmm. rather than saying, you know, like a peer to like in a, in a romantic relationship or a work relationship or a, a parent to a child, in, in this situation, it's basically a child who has often adapted narcissistic tactics. The child isn't a narcissist, but or the young person, but they've learned they've learned narcissistic tactics to advance the cause that they've been swept up in, and uh, and it's parents trying to reach their children who normally would not be behaving this way or thinking this way, and and like how, you know, how, rather than because a lot of a lot of when it comes to an actual narcissist, the advice is just go away from that person, do not have them in your life anymore. But when mm -hmm. it's a obviously in this situation, it's it's entirely different. Like the, the child, this isn't a person with N NPD or any actual cluster B issue. It's just a teenager yeah. wrapped up in 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 an ideology that's taught them to behave this way. Um, so, what what would be your advice to or your suggestion uh, to to parents who, who who have a child in that in that scenario? Uh, okay, this that's a big is... one that kind of threw on you out the, <laughs> out the blue there. It is. Okay, I think first of all, in this case, it's really important to separate between the parent and the child. Just use these diagrams to separate between the two. Think of I like thinking of the mind as being like a rider that sits on an elephant. The elephant is the unconscious mind, and the rider is the rational mind. We can believe that the rider controls 90% and the elephant 10%, but that is inaccurate. It's more like the opposite. The rider controls maybe 10% on a good day, and the elephant controls 90%. If we argue the elephant is hearing, you're stupid, I don't like you. So instead of talking like this with arguments, the elephant understands you're stupid, I don't like you. The information goes up, they don't like us, they're stupid, and so it's more anger. The first thing I think that's really important is try to label accurately doesn't mean you agree, but label what the elephant is thinking, the child's elephant is thinking. A uh, great book to read is Never Split the Difference by Chris Foss. He's a former FBI hostage negotiator. Uh, label what the child is, is feeling just so you can get to a that's right. And then once this is the case, you can sort of use the scales like the, the, the zero to 10 scales or zero to 100. And just say something like, you know, it seems like you've decided that there is no other solution beside the one that you're considering. And you've totally closed your mind to any possibility of doing anything else. And even if there was another solution, you wouldn't even want it. So you want to get to a point where they say, no, I'm open to the possibility that maybe something may be skeptical, but maybe open. I was talking about this recently with someone thinking, you know, you believe the solution or this thing will be a solution to problems. Let's imagine that didn't work. Would you give up? Would you decide there's no other possibility, such as, I don't know, therapy, psychometrics? And quite often people say, I believe that buying another pair of shoes is the solution to my, to my existential problems. Like, yeah, maybe it is. Last times it didn't work. But like, what have you done in terms of understanding yourself? How many psychometric tests have you had? How many hundreds of hours with therapists have you done? How much introspection have you done? 
How about you exhaust all of the easy solutions before you jump into the hard ones? You know, because yeah, maybe it's going to work, but maybe it won't. And then you can also just do the labeling of going, if it didn't work, what would happen? You know, maybe it did, maybe it would work. Maybe it would work, you know, okay. If it didn't work, what would happen? And keep, you know, reinforcing the, the, the thing of, you know, I'm concerned about you making the right decision for yourself in a way that's going to work out for you in the long term. I don't know what's right. I don't think anyone knows what's right. Some of it is a bit of a gamble. So how about we reduce the risk of the gamble? Or how, will, how would we know that there's nothing else we can do? I guess a lot of how questions. Uh, another book that's from Someone You Love by Nancy Dreyfus. And that's a book about healing relationships through dialogue, through conversation. Probably inside there, there are quite a few sentences that can be used. And uh, that's one thing. Another thing comes to mind is actually what you can use with people who want to commit suicide is going, well, maybe suicide is the right thing. But if you waited one more day, how terrible would that be? You know, why now, basically? If we waited one more week, what would happen? How could we make that week nice? How could we how could we try to improve something to make it better? Uh, but I think that's that's largely about getting getting their elephant to wind down to stop viewing us as being the enemy. And and it can be really tough um, when it comes to children, siblings, um, especially when they when they've been told that our concern is simply a sign of contempt and we don't accept them. Um, but sometimes you just need to label it and say, it seems like there's nothing I can say that won't be interpreted as being me hating you. And this is trying to get a no-oriented label. Like there's nothing I could do. And just push for it. There's so there's something I could do. Well, what could I do? I'm at a loss. I don't know how to do it. Uh the I guess that the positive side is when kids are younger, it's probably easier to get them out of the ideologies if they spent 20 years inside them, that's pretty much become the personality. There's not very much you can do. But it's, uh, yeah, really tough. Um, I've got no no easy solution for that. But I think view them as having an elephant. See what you can do to help the elephant wind down. Try to label it to get to where that's right. Use a lot of negotiation strategies. Um, and then also sometimes call them out. If they go, if you don't do what, what I want, then I'm going to do this. Go, well, that's blackmail. How am I supposed to do that? Like, is, it, is, is that really the right way to proceed? You know, you're really angry. Sure, I get it. You're really angry and you want plenty of things. And, you know, what if it didn't work out? What would you do, what would you do then? And if they say, well, it is going to work out. Okay, it seems like you're 100% certain that the, it's impossible that anything would go wrong. And you're basing this actually on facts that show you that nothing has ever gone wrong in the past for anyone ever. And if they go, well, that's not the case. Okay, how can we, you know, I don't want anything to go wrong for you. How can we be comfortable that things are going to be all right for you? It seems like you're 100% comfortable with this gamble. You're 100% certain that you're going to be one of the lucky ones. If that's the case, how did you get here? How can you convince me? I want you to convince me. I'd like to be on your side. I'd like you to convince me. Right now, I'm worried. Maybe you think it's unreasonable for me to be worried. But if things would go wrong, you know, then, then how, how would it be for you? And just sort of 
lead the lead this kind of conversation. I think I think that's one of the the most effective ways to do it. Basically, listen a lot. Try to label the emotions. Look up um, Paul Ekman's work, his his website, atlasofemotions.com.org.org, I think. He explains intensity of emotions and the function of the emotions. Uh, I think try to try to help people wind things down. Then, you know, I'll, ideally, what I'd be doing in person would be doing this this energy work to help remove the emotions that people have. If someone's angry, we can pull out the the anger gets stored here in the jaws. There are ways to pull that out. Uh, the sadness is stored in the body. There's um oh, and the other thing is uh, I think of it. Gabor Mate is a specialist in trauma and addiction. And that's also really interesting to look at. Like, what is going on behind this? How can we use this to identify, um, to understand ourselves better? And I think the more people that understand themselves, the better off they are in life. And then if they make a decision coming from a place of peace of mind and contentment and clarity, well, they're making, they're making in that case, an informed decision with a clear algorithm and relatively clear data. But if they're doing it from a place where they're simply trying to enact their anger and their frustration, those aren't generally good good decisions. It's like the, the modernists being really angry and frustrated and upset and enacting it in ways that were not particularly helpful um, for themselves or for others. They, they were not exactly a happy bunch. No, then they said, it, well, it's because of reality. It's like, yeah, but you know, reality, there are plenty of things to look at. We, we can focus, we can pretend there are only negative things you know, things to be angry about, or we can say, well, the things to be grateful for and things that can be improved. But our choice between the two says a lot about us and says nothing about reality. It's all about it. It's all about the way we want to see the world. A bit of gratitude gives us energy to actually make things better. But if you just want to be resentful, then we just want the whole world to burn down. That's what narcissists do. Excellent stuff. Thank you so much. No, you're most welcome. Very interesting and helpful. Excellent. I'm pleased that you that you enjoyed that. I'm going to save these these uh, diagrams in case you'd like to to use them at any point. I'll send them to you. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah, right. I enjoyed your questions. By the way, uh, I think this it's a fascinating topic, and yeah, there are a lot of parallels between narcissists and certain certain groups, certain ideologies. Yeah, it's it's something that that. Um... I have a lot of, I have a lot, due to certain personal experiences, I have a lot of sympathy for people who are actually narcissistic and a great deal more sympathy for people who have just learned those tactics inadvertently and, and kind yeah. of trying to solve that because I, I feel like, I feel like there is a solve for it. Um, so, yeah. And I think, yeah, all of this is, anyone can apply a lot of this to it, to a lot of different, uh, yeah, ways, uh, ways people think about things and, and interpret the world. And I know I got a lot out of this. So narcissists live a life of being, <clears throat> excuse me, of being perpetually disappointed with their results. You know, because <laughs> their, their, need, yeah, that's their, their needs are valid. I mean, the need for connection, the need for various things, the need for certain outcomes, but they're, but they're going about it in a way that is so counterproductive to relationship. That that's often, the goal. Yeah. That's the goal. They, they they want they want things to mismatch. They can be angry. They're just enacting the anger. They're angry at the world. Mm -hmm. That's why they they set things up for failure. That's why they're such losers. They set things up for failure so they can be angry. They can they can just slash out at other people. And uh, you know I think we 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 can all have these traits to some extent. 
The question is, how much do we have them and how much do we want to avoid them? And most of us think, oh God, you know, I acted like an idiot again. I got to do something about it. Um, and other people, I mean, like you say, you know, there's, there's some level of sympathy. They want some of these things, but largely it's their inability to deal with frustration. That's the problem. You know, what you want is as valid as what I want. And we can just discuss it. And if we can find a common agreement, it's great. And if we don't, well, that's fine. There are enough other people out there in the world. But if I become vengeful because we disagree, what does it say about me? It's not great. You know, it probably says I'm wrong, first of all. And, uh, you know, then it probably says I, I like being vengeful, which doesn't really make me a very nice person. <laughs> I've, always, I've I've come to see see, see narcissism as, as a a defense mechanism against a very deep deep sense of inadequacy, and um, I know you say in your videos like don't don't dwell on what caused this behavior, just basically how to protect yourself from it. Um, but for me, I am very fascinated by how because because people aren't born with this disorder, I, it, it's it develops, and I think it develops due to um, often neglect and and a very disconnect between that person's sense of self and the people around them and constantly being um, othered or um, like feeling like an absolute outsider and having a very deep, deep sense of inadequacy and kind of isolation that, that forms into this, this, this self-protective mechanism that no one matters but me. I am always right. And any, any challenge to that is, is again, like that whole that whole identity not being able to tell the identity from you from your, your physical self and and i think that for them that's such a solid like their sense of identity is so it's actually the opposite of solid i'm we're wrapping this up and i've gone on a whole new new side train here um but i think it is i think it's, a, it's an adaptive it's a self-defense mechanism that's gone completely awry and basically self-fulfilling prophecy you know it, it, it just it makes it makes that isolation and that that um, uh, yeah, and it just makes it makes it makes it worse. Well, it could, it could be that it could also be to some extent that they realize that just by putting on a fake persona, they get what they want, and so they pretend to be one person. They get the outcomes they want, and they're always afraid they're going to be unmasked. They realize that if they put on a fake persona with you and another one with me, they sort of get by, and they're always juggling many balls at the same time. So, I mean, this is like one of the one of the mysteries behind it. Is it because they, they lack self-confidence or simply they realize it's significantly easier or they just become manipulative or a combination of the two? Or does it depend? Uh, I don't really have answers there. But, you know, I, I see that the fake persona is a, is a big part of it where you think, you know, you, you show me signs of who you are, but when I triangulate, it doesn't add up. And what's really going on there? I think what, what's going on is, well, that's a fake persona. It's easier. You know, that's like the, the algorithm. I'm a this, you know, I'm a socialist, or I'm a capitalist, or I'm a stock trader or crypto whatever guru uh, or YouTube influencer. And people start using that. It's just a fake persona. No, you're not. I'm not any of that. I'm just me, you know, and I do things, but I'm me. And even if I end up, you know, flipping burgers at McDonald's, I'm me, still me. And if I end up president of some country, still me, just me. It's super simple. Just, just me. My activity is what I do. It's not me. I am me. That's it. I'm, I'm enough as me. If I end up as being a gardener or a barista, it's still me. It's okay. It's just me. It's fine. I'm still there with my emotions, still trying to work through the basic things of humanity. And if I'm a multi-billionaire, I'm still me. There's, there's not much else to it.
it's, it's sort of complex and simple at the same time. Um, but I think sometimes scary in the simplicity, just me with a mirror, who do I, who do I really see? I think that's often people don't want to see the mirror. And I think the narcissists are the ones who go, I'm not seeing a mirror, I'm putting on a mask because if I remove the mask, there's no one there. I think that's where it gets really scary. Awesome. Well, thank you again. Yeah. This has been great. Excellent. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. I spoke a lot. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.